So this evening I want to talk about compassion. It seems like after uh, this much of the retreat, everybody could probably use a little compassion. So the first thing that I want to ask you to do is to practice compassion while listening to the talk. And that means listening with at least an attempt to set aside your judgments or criticisms or, um, you know, measuring yourself or comparing, oh, she's talking about that, I never felt that, or I wish I did, or uh, I never do anymore. You know, these kinds of judgments and comparisons, seeing if you can just listen in the spirit of compassion, just practicing that right away, and also compassion for the speaker who, you know, this is like, I was trying to count, I think it's my 15th year of teaching in retreat settings. But still, there's something about facing all of you together that's very different from facing and being with you even in groups. There's something about just everybody spread out together. It's a different feeling. So um, you can practice compassion in your listening and also some compassion for the speaker. Uh, So it's the second evening, and by now probably everybody's pretty sore. And, you know, pretty tired. The mind is uh, perhaps getting over its bliss at being at Spirit Rock and starting to resist or keeping on resisting if it has been. We're so educated to be trapped in our minds. And we're so educated to be trapped in our thoughts, in what Gill was calling the thinking process, to be entirely encapsulated inside that thinking process. I found this New Yorker cartoon And it shows a couple, and they're sitting at the edge of a meadow overlooking a beautiful mountain vista. And they're just sitting there together. The sun is out. They're under a tree. And the man leans forward, and he says to her, I could sit here all day thinking about my problems. We all know what that feels like. You know, you find yourself here, you see the deer and the mountains and the trees, and what happens? What do you think about all day long when you're thinking, of course? It's one of the uh, first insights of insight meditation, that 99% of what we think is about guess who. And until we meet the Dharma, we're really not educated in... Um, how to stand aside from this thinking process and how to begin to let thoughts appear and disappear and how to find presence, an experience of presence. So it's really going against the stream to come here and do this. And even though this kind of meditation, Anapanasati, that Eugene talked about so beautifully last night, it's probably the simplest thing you'll ever do in your life to sit here and breathe and notice what it's like. But the mind isn't used to being simple. 
And it isn't used to being ardently simple. And it isn't used to being at ease. And so to rest in that experience of simple, sacred presence, to simply rest in the ease of that, uh, it generates a tremendous amount of resistance, sometimes called the hindrances, but it's just resistance. And at the beginning especially, the mind, let's face it, it doesn't want to meditate. I mean, we really want to meditate. But um, some members of the committee do not want to meditate. (laughs) And yet we're willing to do this, to come here and sit here, sometimes just sitting so still like lifeless statues or creeping around like zombies. And we're willing to endure fear and lust and weariness and pain and doubt and despair. And maybe we do this so that we can just begin to see a little bit of what this life really is. I mean, there is a purpose to all of this, and you know that. And it's called, um, it's really called wisdom and compassion. And it means loving the truth this much, sometimes called bodhicitta, our way-seeking mind, which just means loving the truth this much, that we're willing to do this, that we're willing to enter the temple. Uh, I love that contemplate being in the temple. You know, if you visit temples in Asia, if you've ever gone to visit temples there, they are, the plan uh, of the temple is actually a metaphor, it's a map of our consciousness. And so you enter the temple through, there are several gates. And when you first enter the temple, there are, there's a big gate and then there are more gates and at, I think it's the second um, set of gates, there are these huge statues of very fierce temple guardians. And they look frightening, like sort of somebody you would just not want to meet in a dark alley. And they look like, uh, and they're wielding weapons. And these, this is the first line of resistance, the first line of defense as we attempt to enter more and more deeply into our own hearts. And this first line of defense are all the hindrances of avoiding or running away, aversion, ill will, anger, violence, getting really aggressive with experience, pushing it away, distancing ourselves, all these kinds of ways of um, disconnecting from presence, these strategies of disconnection. And if you can walk through this gate, which you are all doing, you come to, along this very wide pathway, another set of gates. And the guardians at this set of gates are very beautiful, and they're playing lutes or mandolins. They're very seductive. And these are the guardians that, um, they represent the siren call of obsession, of indulgence, of inertia, of giving up, of wanting and longing and lusting. 
the if-onlys of our life, these are very seductive temple guardians. And we walk past those, too. And lo and behold, we find that we are already in the temple. We're already right in the temple, in the midst of experience, because these things are only hindrances when we think that we have to do something to make them go away, instead of realizing that we just need to see them. As the Buddha said, I see you, Mara. So compassion, compassion is understood, and there are images of compassion in every religion. Um, I think compassion is that nurturing kindness of the heart. That it's a kind of, um, I think it's a maternal feeling. And the Hebrew word for compassion, I might be pronouncing this wrong, um, rachamim, is the plural of the word for womb. And Christianity's most tender image of compassion is, I think, represented by Michelangelo's Pietà, that beautiful image of a mother holding her dead son. And the Buddha says in the Metta Sutta, like a mother who protects her child, her only child, we could say a parent, who protects their child, their only child, with their own life, one should cultivate a heart of unlimited love and compassion toward all beings. The Sufis call it the beloved. Recently, last month, I was in Washington, D.C. at the Mind and Life meetings with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and a bunch of scientists from different branches of science, um, some psychologists and neuroscientists and, and so forth. And um, there was a lot of scientific evidence for the benefits of compassion. And in, you know, in one way, it's an example, another example maybe of science proving what we intuitively, mystically already know to be true. But there's a certain joy in discovering, oh yes, this, since science is the dominant discourse of our time, there is, uh, there's joy in discovering that these things are actually proven to be so. This is from uh, His Holiness. The compelling evidence from neuroscience of the crucial role of simple physical touch for even the physical enlargement of an infant's brain during the first few weeks powerfully brings home the intimate connection between compassion and human happiness. In the last 20 years, um, neurobiology has really proven that stroking, connecting, snuggling, gazing, the vocalizations of infants and mothers, that these things become the basis for all subject, um, subsequent relatedness. They really, um, they set the tone for our future relationships. And our brains are physically wired to be regulated and calibrated with another's. There are actually neurons called mirror neurons 
that do this function of calibrating and connecting. It begins before words, it's completely wordless, but we can all feel it. We all know, uh, you know, you don't have to hear any words, you can walk into a room and sense what's happening there. There are uh, one or two people who join this retreat without having started at the beginning. And when they walk into this room, there is a palpable sense of what's happening here. For you, you know, it's the air you're breathing, the water you're swimming in. You may not feel it, but they will feel it very strongly. You know when someone is in a dark mood as soon as you walk into the room. And you don't have to hear any words when you walk into the presence of a being who's happy. It's contagious, and you feel it. There's a hormone called oxytocin. It's sort of the comfy, nurturing love hormone. Both males and females will produce this hormone when they see a baby. And I read that a single exposure to oxytocin can make a lifelong change in the brain. And there are pictures of these things. That's how the scientists can make these statements. There are actually pictures. I mean, we could all run out and find a baby to look at. Uh, It probably wouldn't hurt, but, you know, we can also practice looking at ourselves this way. It's really an encouragement to open our hearts to ourselves, to really open our hearts to ourselves, because how we relate to ourselves is the basis for how we relate to everyone else in our life. And how we treat ourselves is the template for how we treat others. And how we treat ourselves and how we treat others is what makes our world. It's what creates the world we inhabit. So the really good news of Buddhist practice is that are innate, uh, that our, our true nature, our innate hearts are clear and calm and sane and good, and that we can change the patterns, the conditioned patterns that we've grown up with. And the original blessing of neuroscience that they are conferring on us is this news of what's called neuroplasticity. And this means that the brain can change. It can grow and change throughout the whole life cycle. In other words, um, in the words of uh, Suzuki Roshi, who wrote this calligraphy that my friend Yvonne Rand had on the wall of her zendo, never say too late. That's what this means. It's never too late. There is an innate capacity of the brain to grow new synaptic connections to, um, and to grow new neurons, to give birth to new neurons. And that this can keep happening all throughout our lives is something that was not known before. It was really thought that, you know, between the ages of one and three, the brain was sort of set. And it's not true. 
where we bring our attention, that's where neurons are firing. And again, this can be seen in um, what are called functional MRIs. They can see, take pictures of this. It's really echoing the words of Nyaponi Katera, who said, to that which we bring attention, to that does the mind incline. So this is true at the cellular level of our brains. To that which we bring attention, that's where the neurons are firing. It's a pretty good argument for using mindfulness, isn't it? I mean, we are literally shaping our brains, and we can choose to shape them for better or for worse. We can train ourselves to begin to focus on the ways in which we're okay instead of being so riveted by our shortcomings and ways that we don't meet our expectations and imperfections and incompletenesses and just being sort of generally wrong. We can uh, begin to see our okayness. I think it was Ed Brown who wrote under a picture of the Buddha with this mudra, the Buddha okays all sentient beings. (laughs) You know, this is the activity of compassion, and we can learn to okay ourselves. I wanted to share um, something amazing that, um, that I learned at Mind and Life from a neuroscientist, named, a German neuroscientist named Wolf Singer. And he talked about, in his research, how there, there really is no... Um, that the brain is constructed in such a way that um, there really is no central convergence anywhere to be found. There's no central coordination in the brain. There's just this synchronous activity, the cooperative activity of large numbers of neurons distributed all over the cortical area, kind of like a um, big um, hairnet. And uh, they function like that, all firing together. So even though we subjectively have the impression that we are, there is a central headquarters and we are it, um, it's not true. When we meditate, we kind of begin to see that um, we're just not in control. And what he talked about is that the brain, it functions in these oscillating patterns of synchronicity. And that um, when we do introspective disciplines like meditation... Um, you can the brain can just integrate and bring together lots of different kinds of information that when we analyze things get separated and divided and categorized and set apart. And here's an interesting question that they studied. How does the brain know that it's right? How do we know when we're right about something? But how does the brain know when it's right? Well, when there are a large enough number of neurons that are all um, oscillating together uh, over time, 
in such a way that our ideas about this and that get unified when they oscillate together over a long enough period of time, and I don't know how long it might be, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes, I don't know. Um, but we develop this very sustained, pleasant feeling that our ideas are solved. Some kind of, you know, that satisfying feeling of a problem getting solved. There's a, a synthesis, a satisfaction of understanding. And when the brain has this continuous depth of understanding, we're happy. We're happy. And we're happy all the time when our brains are oscillating together and not broken up into this thing and that thing which are in conflict and set um, against each other. And he said, when the brain is functioning together in this synchronous way, we'll come back to compassion because this is uh, linked to it. When the brain is functioning together in this synchronous way, then our questions are resolved. And by having these high gamma frequency bliss states, and maybe we just experience a few moments of them in retreat, but uh, when we have them, the brain isn't splitting itself up into um, bits. It's experiencing joy. It's so interesting that the brain doesn't really like us to be comparing and subdividing and when we're um, creating conflict by doing this. So he was kind of wondering if the best default, from all his research, if the best default mode of the brain is to be just kind of left alone, non-striving, at rest. And he gave a beautiful example. He said, if you ask one neuron, what are you doing right now? It'll say, well, I'm getting signals from here, and I'm getting signals from this one and that one, and I'm getting ready to send a signal to about 50,000 others, and that's what I'm doing. And it'll never say, I'm part of a network that's generating a feeling, a concept right now. The individual neurons have an incomplete awareness of what it is and what it means to be integrated into the body of the whole. And that's our dilemma. We're functioning like independent neurons when we're actually connected in this neural web. And I found it deeply, deeply inspiring to hear from the neuroscientist these principles coming out of all the research, and this was the summing up at the end of the conference. We have to be more humble, because we don't know. We need less emphasis on the almighty self. We need to enjoy openness and not look for certainty. I think looking for certainty should be like the sixth hindrance. It's probably a, it's probably a fetter, an attachment to views. Anyway, we should let go of that and enjoy openness and uncertainty. Easier said than done. And we need to be able to experience compassion for ourselves, for those who are right in front of our nose, and long-distance compassion for those who are remote from us. So it was, you know, East, West, science, Buddhism, uh, everybody just trying to find a way to live a happier life. 
I want to tell you a story about the family retreat because I just taught my last family retreat at IMS in Barrie, Massachusetts uh, this summer after teaching it for five years. And the family retreat, it's a different retreat. There's always food out because there's kids there. So there's always peanut butter and jelly and big, big bowls, giant bowls of delicious fruit. And it happens in the summertime. So um, there's always peaches or plums or out on the table. And it's really a treat to see those fruits, especially if you've ever lived in New England. And so often when I was walking through the dining room, I would just, you know, pick one up, just grab a purple plum or um, a pretty peach. They really looked good. And then there would be this experience of intense disappointment when I would bite into it once I got it up to my room. And it just tasted like nothing after all that anticipation. And, you know, all the years that I lived in New England, I didn't feel that way about the fruit. I thought it was sweet and delicious. But now I live in California, (laughs) where fruit tastes like fruit. And we have the farmer's market, and we have the food co-op with all these organic things, and, you know, it's, plums are so sweet and intense, and there's all these different varieties of them, and it's a whole different experience of eating fruit. And so, of course, I stopped eating the fruit there um, after those first few bites, and, but I would watch all the New Englanders eagerly eating that fruit, just taking it and just eating the whole thing and and I would think God those poor East Coast people they I would feel compassion for them really compassion for them because I would think you know um, they don't even know what a nectarine is supposed to taste like but I having lived in California you know I do know and when I was thinking about, when I would have these feelings, I thought, oh, this is what our teachers must have felt about us. You know, when we started practicing at the beginning, because we didn't know anything. And they must have looked at us with all of our preoccupations and all of our uncertainties and opinions and how juicy we thought they were. And we just munch on them all day long. And, you know, how hard we held on to them. And I'm sure they felt the same compassion for us. Like, they think this is nourishing their hearts. They think this is, you know, good for them. They think this is making their minds happy because they haven't tasted anything else. They haven't tasted what we've tasted. And so there was tremendous compassion that they had for us. And I feel this compassion now, too. I feel it for all the university people who come with their shiny, delicious concepts and ideas about mindfulness, but you'll never find them here at the retreat. I also feel compassion for myself when certain things have happened in my life and I just hang on. And I hold on to my view of them because I know I'm right. And you know what? I am right. That's the thing. 
I know I'm right. (laughs) But compassion asks, would I rather be right or would I rather be free? That's the question. And that's a question you can ask yourself when you're sitting on your cushion having a really juicy mind argument with one of your parents or your partner or your child. You can ask yourself, would I rather be right? Would I rather be free? Because you may be right. You probably are. But to hang on and to chew these things over and um, just support ourselves with them, like the mind attorneys arguing the case, always successfully, um, to do this really leeches the vivid flavor out of our experience. And it just um, drains the aliveness out. Because to be compassionate is an experience of presence, to be fully present, to offer our awareness to experience, to offer our mindfulness, our willingness to be present with whatever arises in experience. This is compassion. This is the activity of compassion. In the teachings, it's often said that wisdom and compassion go together like the two wings of a bird. You can't have one without the other. Wisdom is seeing things as they are, um, like what we talked about, the refuge in Buddha. In the Tibetan tradition, they say, the one who knows. And then recently I read that Achan Cha, too, says, the one who knows, awareness itself. Our capacity for this compassionate awareness is our refuge. And we all have this capacity. We all know where we are. We know, like Santa, if we've been bad or good. We know if things are good and bad. And presence, of course, goes beyond experiences of right and wrong and good and bad. But it doesn't mean we don't know right from wrong. We do. It just means that there's a way of being, um, a middle way that has more wisdom, that doesn't have to get caught on one side or the other, but can really hold the truth of both. In the Tibetan tradition, um, wisdom and compassion are sometimes translated as um, love and knowledge. As soon as we're willing to be a larger container and hold the truth of both, as soon as we're willing to do that, we're in a place of wisdom and compassion already. And in my experience, they really arise together. They come up together. And I was listening to people today and, and hearing people begin in varying degrees to be able to be present with their own sorrow, with a little more tenderness, or at least to be aware of the lack of tenderness, the total, total lack of compassion, at least to see that, you know. But um, listening, I thought, I mean, oddly enough, or is it so odd, as our capacity to bear and release our own suffering grows through the blessing of our practice, this breathing in and breathing out 
moment-to-moment presence, there's increased awareness of the suffering of the whole world and a willingness to connect and feel the 10,000 joys and sorrows. One of the qualities of compassion who's represented by um, the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, or Kuan Yin in China, Kuan Seon Bosal in Korea, Kan Zeon in Japan, Tara in Tibet. She's sitting on the altar back there in the position of ease. I love this position. And one of her qualities is that she looks on everyone, including the many beings within, uh, without judgment, and sees us all as the same, equally deserving of love and affection. After all, we're all in the same boat. When that expression, all being in the same boat, it it conjured, when I was thinking, when I was preparing this talk, it conjured an image for me of um, being invited onto a beautiful, luxurious ship. I mean, if you would like a cruise, we could say a cruise ship. If you wouldn't like a cruise, it could be, you know, one of those educational tours uh, from Harvard or Yale or something. Or if you would, whatever, love boat, whatever kind of ship you'd like, you know, just imagine you're being invited onto this boat. And you're being offered, you're being told about the journey ahead of time, what it's going to be like. There's going to be delicious, delicious food and just piles of it. Um, Fruit that really tastes like fruit. And just whatever you can imagine you would most love to eat. And there's going to be interesting companionship and conversation and people to meet. And there'll be uh, games to play and things to learn. And there's um, a meditation hall there, too, and walking areas. So you can have a retreat on this boat if you'd like to. Um, And you'll be served and cared for and just going to be an amazing journey. And then at the end, the boat is going to sink. (laughs) That's what this is like. How would you feel? You know, that's the boat that we're in. The Buddha said it this way, it seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, We are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. So it seems we're impermanent, unstable, not lasting. And nothing belongs to us that we can call self. When we really get this, we start to rearrange our lives. When we practice the Dharma, we start to arrange and direct our lives so that they're not just completely fastened and focused on our likes and dislikes. We actually redirect our lives to um, 
at least some of the time, what we know will foster a sense of continuity of awareness and of compassion. Another aspect of Tara is that she looks at everybody and her eyes are not clouded by delusion. And she's not looking at you wishing you were somebody else. And I'm not looking at you that way and we're not looking at each other that way here. Well, maybe sometimes. (laughs) But it's not what we're practicing, although it may happen. It's not what we're practicing. One of the gifts of retreat that we offer ourselves is really allowing ourselves to be just the way we are and at least trying to okay ourselves as we are and um, trying not to want ourselves to be other than who we are. And when we can begin to see ourselves and each other that way, we can actually start to uh, embody this other tanka over there, the one that shows the bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara or Chinrezig, with 10,000 arms and hands. 10,000 arms to reach out and help wherever it's needed. And often, each hand is depicted with an eye in the center of the hand to see what needs to be done. So we can see exactly who needs help and what kind of help to offer, again, to the many beings within as well as to each other. And when we're really present with ourselves and with each other, it does become clear what kind of help they need and what to offer. And that's why, for example, when you're feeling confused, you come to retreat because maybe a transition time in your life and there's lots of confusion. And, and you know that the container of retreat will allow you to be present with yourself and um, the particulars of what to do will begin to come clear. A couple weeks ago, I was reading, it was um, around the time of the execution of Tookie Williams, which happened up here uh, two weeks ago, December 13th. And I was reading an interview with Sister Helen Préjean, who wrote Dead Man Walking. Are are you aware of her work? Um, And she was asked in this interview what sustained her in the face of so much violence and despair, the sorrow and rage of the victims' families of the criminal justice system being so unjust, um, of life in the prison on death row, and the terror of these men that she has to walk to their death. And she said, it all goes back to the ability to be present with people. That's all. She says it goes back to the ability to be present with people and she also talked about what it was like to walk with someone to their death. I mean, we could say we're all on a death walk, but it's really not the same. 
what she experienced with that first man, Patrick, he's the one we might think more of, Sean Penn, in the movie, um, changed her life forever. Patrick, uh, she felt such an experience of the sacred, walking with Patrick. And she felt such presence and such certainty that no one should ever be put to death. Ever, ever. That it became her entire life's work. And instead of just responding to one person who asked for help, um, it became her whole life doing this. In another part of the interview, she talked about where she finds the energy and the inspiration to um, carry on such difficult work. And we can ask ourselves this too. Where do we find the energy and the inspiration to carry on? And she said, what steadies me is that I know my commitment and passion will not waver. Not because of my will. This is really important. Not because of our will. So when our will falters, as it inevitably does a million times a day, it's not a cause for despair or upset or losing heart. What steadies me, though, is that I know my commitment and passion will not waver, not because of my will, but because I'm so carried by it. I have a fidelity to the men who looked in my eyes before they died. And then she says something really interesting. She says, ego becomes dominant when your personal agenda is small. And I can feel that too, you know, in terms of just coming to give a talk. Like the ego, oh, will I do a good job? Oh, I've never talked in front of Eugene and Diana, Gil and you guys, and I really want it to be good, and maybe I only have one chance to give a talk in the whole retreat, so it better be a good one, da-da-da-da. You know, that is what I call, like, the activity of the ego, right? And, uh, and then, of course, tremendous self-consciousness. That's also the ego, you know, oh, my God. <laughs> in an hour, they're going to be there. You know, that kind of feeling arises, and... That arises when our personal agenda is small, looking good. (laughs) When your little boat, so this is what she said, ego becomes dominant when your personal agenda is small. When your little boat gets caught up on a wave that's bigger than you are, ego drops away. When really all I care about is offering what I love the most, sharing that with you. It doesn't really matter anything else. And I think that's why we've come here. We come to retreat so that our little boat can get caught up in a wave that's bigger than we are. A wave of presence and compassion. A wave of commitment and discipline. The wave of Sangha is so much bigger than any one of us alone. And no matter what you're manifesting at any given moment, and how um, disappointing you may find that to be, uh, you just can't have, you can't possibly know uh, the blessing of what Eugene called the divinity of Buddhist practice. (laughs) 
it's a kind of uh, transcendent knowing and the mind that wants to evaluate and judge and know how we're doing is not the mind that uh, knows in a transcendent way. And when we're willing to know the light and the dark, the good and the bad, and hold it all in the same heart, this is what the Buddha called the middle way. In the psychoanalytic tradition, it's called ambivalence. In that tradition, ambivalence doesn't mean wobbling, being undecided, vacillating between this or that, um, conflicted. Ambivalence refers to a strength of the heart, like a parami, really, a perfection. It means being able to hold our love and our hate in the heart, that they can peacefully coexist in the same heart. And to know that sometimes the person we love the most is also the person we hate the most. And not having to be the hapless victim of these kinds of feelings, oscillating on one side or the other, you know, because we're not the condition that we are in, whether it's a condition of love or a condition of hate. Our awareness is not the condition or the emotion itself. Transcendent knowing, the middle way, ambivalence, is knowing that the heart is bigger than either side. Um, Sister Préjean said that after that first time with Patrick where she really couldn't face the victim's family, um, she just couldn't face them. And that was a mistake. And so after that, she always has made um, an effort, and she's walked five men, at least at the time of that interview, it may be many more by now, um, to their death. She said that she always reaches out to the victims of families, and they almost always refuse her because they cannot really hold in their hearts that she could care and support the person who killed their loved one and that she could also care and support them care about and support them with the same heart. Their hearts just aren't that wide yet. So compassion is really being able to hold all of this in the heart and suspend the critical function. And by the critical function, I don't just mean um, you know criticizing each other and ourselves. I, I mean, that's very entertaining. We do it all day, but I mean, seeing things from one side or the other of a duality, kind of like what Wolf Singer was talking about um, in the brain. And this is a very steep path, and it's a practice point. In the realm of duality, there's always some conflict. A Dharma teacher, a friend of mine, just happens to work with a lot of wealthy people and extremely wealthy people. And he was saying, you wouldn't believe how many of these people say to me, I really wish I'd spent my whole life meditating instead of you know, amassing this fortune. And um, there's a genuine longing for another life that they didn't get to live because they were doing their fabulous business and having their creative expression and Um, And it was funny because we were talking about this from the other side uh, as Dharma teachers and thinking, 
sometimes the thought arises, well, I could have been a businesswoman, and I could have been compassionate too, you know. (laughs) And I'd be in a very different situation (laughs) than I'm in right now. Um, So as long as we're in that realm of duality, there's always the life, there's always going to be the life we didn't get to live. And, uh, you know, the one we didn't marry. And uh, there's always going to be that. And our refuge, the uh, compassionate awareness, the transcendent knowing that can hold all of it, all of it, in the realm of totality, all of this, the life of all worlds, all the Buddha realms, all the worlds of experience, we can really welcome and understand and include it all, no part left out. Like that beautiful Izumi poem. I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact words. When she says, watching the moon, and of course the moon is a symbol for awakening, the full moon, you know, everything illuminated in the light of awareness. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So in closing, I'm just going to read you a poem about this. I copied it from a book without writing down what book or what. I think it's a Mary Oliver poem from her latest book. It's called One. The mosquito is so small, it takes almost nothing to ruin it. Each leaf, the same, and the black ant hurrying. So many lives, so many fortunes. Every morning I walk softly and with forward glances down to the ponds and through the pine woods, mushrooms even, have but a brief hour before the slug creeps in for the feast before the pine needles hustle down under the bundles of harsh, beneficent rain. How many, how many, how many make up a world? And then I think of that old idea, the singular and the eternal. We say the absolute and the relative. One cup in which everything is swirled back to the color of the sea and the sky. Imagine it. In the moment in which there's no wind over your shoulder, and some translations of nirvana are no wind, that stillness of the heart. In the moment in which there's no wind over your shoulder, you stare down into it, that cup. And there you are, your, she says, your own darling face. Can you see your face as darling, your own as beloved. In that moment in which there's no wind over your shoulder, you stare down into it, and there you are, your own darling face, your own eyes. And then the wind, not thinking of you, just passes by, touching the ant, the mosquito, the leaf. And you know what else? How wet is the sea, I'm paraphrasing, for our situation here. How wet is the sea? How wet is the sky? 
how wet and tiny and redeemable everything is, even you, even your eyes, even your imagination, even your thinking. So we come here on retreat to offer ourselves this compassionate gift of silence, so rare and so precious, to offer ourselves the gift of spaciousness that we can be together, but we can also be alone. No fear of intrusion from anyone else, just experiencing the flowering of our own hearts, and that we can give that gift of full presence to our practice. There's really nothing more important, is there? By giving full attention to our practice, we're giving ourselves the compassionate possibility of realizing the truth of the Dharma. Not as some story about the future, maybe at the end of the week. Uh Uh-uh. Now. And then what we can offer to ourselves, to being present, is really boundless. And then our world is boundless, too. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for your compassionate listening. Mm -hmm.